How I Became a Christian Hedonist, 1981. And it was the sermon that put John Piper on the map for, for 40 years of ministry through Desiring God. When it first came out, the idea that Christian and hedonist could be in the same phrase, much less the same title of a sermon, much less the same sermon was sort of revolutionary. It was the sermon that put John Piper on the map in 1981. You know, this morning what we realized is that Jesus had a sermon like this. Jesus had a sermon that sort of put him on the map, so to speak, a sermon that, that influenced countless people and, and places that lots of people wanted to know and hear and listen to. It defined his ministry in some way, in some great way, actually. The interesting thing about the sermon that we just heard read from Leslie out of John or Luke chapter 4 is that most scholars who study the book of Luke believe that this was a sermon that Jesus preached multiple times. That like an itinerant preacher goes around and has a message that they want to get across that in this season of his ministry that Jesus was going preaching this same sermon in multiple synagogues. And if not the same exact sermon, that the content of this sermon influenced the content of all of the other sermons that he preached in this season of his ministry. One of the reasons some scholars believe that is you look at the summary statements that are made at the beginning and at the end of these sections. Luke chapter 4, 14 to 15, and Jesus returned in the, spirit of Gal- in the spirit to Galilee, and the report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Luke 4, 42 on the backside, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, although Jesus likely preached the sermon multiple times, if not the content of it multiple times, in multiple, many different places, the place that stands out the most that Luke records it in is, is in Nazareth because it had a particular kind of impact in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. And as he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, he, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now, the way things happened in the synagogue was that someone would stand up and read from the scriptures. And then everyone else would actually have an opportunity to stand up and to, and to give some commentary on that section of scripture. And then the rabbi would sort of wrap things up at the end, put a bow on the service. Now, this would be atypical for us. Right, there's some Sundays where you might come to church and you might see a microphone set up over here and you might wonder what's that there for and who's going to share and what are they going to say that's sort of special. It's, it's not typical that after the scripture's read that everyone sort of speaks into it, although I think at our church that would go really well. I think a lot of you know a lot about the scriptures. You have a lot of insight in the scriptures. There's lots of people in our church that could stand up here like myself and actually teach something from the scriptures to and with the rest of us. I think it's a great strength of the village church. But this is the way that it would happen. They would all get up and give their commentary again. The rabbi would come up at the end just to kind of tie a bow on things, give his own commentary, the short sermon at the end. So here Jesus is. He stands up and he is the scripture reader, like Leslie was here or John was at the 8.30. He's the one that actually reads the scripture. And he's the one that gives a little commentary on it, just one sentence of commentary we see. And then he sits down. There's no need for the rabbi to wrap things up at the end. It's all complete, and the scene makes that very obvious. 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written this. Now, it's interesting, Jesus is the one guy that could just sort of stand up and give a sermon, a great one, you know, off the cuff, right? Just like, it's just like sermon roulette. You just give him a passage of scripture and he can just preach on it. So here, he's handed the scroll of Isaiah and he finds a place that he wants and he's like, okay, here we go. And he begins to read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what was it about this sermon that made it so popular? What was it about this sermon that put Jesus on the map, so to speak, through this sermon? Was it that Jesus was using a prop like Francis Chan? There was a balance beam. There was something that he used. He used a prop to make it sort of unique. And so everyone was kind of drawn to the sermon for that reason? Well, no. Although Jesus used props in other sermons, likely. I can't imagine, you know, him preaching the sermon of like, you know, if you see this, this log in your, you know, in your brother's eye, but you have a speck in your own eye, that Jesus wasn't at some point grabbing a stick or a log and kind of holding it up, and, and people may have even laughed and chuckled. It was kind of a joke. We know that Jesus actually used children sometimes as props in a sense that he said, let the little children come to me, and he, he propped them up probably on his knee, and, and he would use them as an illustration about the way we should follow God like little children do. Jesus did use props, but in this sermon, there was no prop. Was it his passion? Was it just one of those sermons like a John Piper sermon where he gets up and he's just flailing his arms everywhere and spit flies out of his mouth and his, and his voice and his thundering and, and his passion. He can go on for a long time, 42, 52 minutes of a sermon. He could go on long times and his passion can grip you. And if you've ever seen him preach, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm not sure that was what was going on in this sermon either. It just says that Jesus sat down and I think, very calmly said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what was it about the sermon that made it so impactful, that set Jesus on the map in a sense? I think it was likely a novel idea. I think it was, it was a novel idea. And, and those are the kind of sermons that sometimes grab our attentions. It's not the prop and it's not the passion of the preacher. It's the novel idea. It's that he's opening a scripture and he's saying something in such a way that it's true to the text, but it's different than I've heard before. It's a new take on something. It sort of draws us in. And I think that's what, in part, what was happening to this synagogue in Nazareth. And I think there are three novel ideas to this sermon. I'm not sure Jesus ever preached a three-point sermon. <laughs> but that's typically what most of us are used to. And so for sake of context this morning, I'm going to offer three, I think, novel ideas that Jesus was trying to get across in this sermon. And the first one is this, that it's not about you. It's about me. And this was a novel idea then as the entire people of God and the synagogue and all the customs and the practices and the rituals and the routines and the liturgies. It was all about them. It was a novel idea then and it's a novel idea now. I mean, you could go to any 
one of many churches in Orange County today, and, and you can hear things that are all about you. So many sermons in, in the church, evangelical church in America for that matter, are all about, like, about us, about our lives, about how to make ourselves better, better this, better that, better relationships, better finance. It's all centered around us. This is a novel idea today as much as it was in that day. It's not about you, Jesus says. It's about me. You see the weight of the, of the sermon? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All these me's are about me. It's not about you. It's about me, Jesus is saying. You know, if you've been around the Village Church a little while, you know that a few years back um, I took a sabbatical one summer, and it was a great season in my life, as you can imagine. And one of the great things about that season was, was I got to go to church a little bit differently. Right? Most Sundays when I come to church, I'm not coming to church thinking, you know, God, what do you have for me? What do you want to say to me? What do you want to reveal to me? I'm usually coming thinking, what do you want me to say to your people, right? And, and I've spent a lot of my time in a given week thinking about that question. And so during that season, I, I came to church a little differently. I actually drove to church with my family, which is a novel idea, right, as you go to church. And then on the way to church with my family, I would be thinking these things, and I would be praying sort of under my breath, Lord, what do you have for me today? What do you want to say to me today? And then I'd go to church, and I'd I sense I think God is wanting to say this thing to me, and, and that was a really pleasurable kind of experience, actually. But the further I got along in my sabbatical summer, I realized there's actually a better question to ask than what do you have to say to me? Not that that's a bad question. I think it's actually a good question. Last week we talked about this idea that God wants to speak to us. He wants to tell us about the things that he set us apart for and that he wants to do in us and through us. But I think there is a better question. And the better question, I think, is this. What do you want to show me about yourself? Not what do you want to say to me about what you want from me or for me, but what do you want to show me about yourself, about who you are? Listen, if he says anything to you this morning, it can be for you, and that's a wonderful thing. But I want to tell you, it's not ultimately about you. It's about him. And if God wants to say anything to us as a people collectively, that's a great thing. and We should receive those things. But it's not ultimately for us or just about us. It's about him. It's about what he wants us to see about him. It's always, and it's only, and it's solely about him. And so as we think about making this transition from 2020 to 2021, it kind of feels like that year where, where it doesn't feel like much of a transition, right? It seems like not a lot new is going to happen or change. It kind of feels like Groundhog Day a little bit. We're leaning into a new year, though, and thinking, you know, God, what do you have for me? What do you want to show me about who you are? One of the scriptures that I think most of us, maybe think about when we think about this idea that it's all about Jesus comes from the book of Colossians. That book is really all about that. And in chapter 1, it says he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn among all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, listen, and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church, this gathering. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. Here it is, that in everything he might be preeminent. Village Church, the last month we've been talking about this idea that God is with us. And this morning we're reminded that, yes, God is with us. But it's not about us. It's about him. I think there's a second novel idea that Jesus was trying to get across to this gathering in this synagogue in Nazareth. I think it's this. It's not about you. It's about those who still need me. First novel idea, it's not about you. It's about me. Second novel idea, I think Jesus is saying, it's not about you, it's about those who still need me. Jesus reads this passage that says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, typically, I think when we look at this passage, we think those are four categories of people, the poor, the blind, the captive, and the oppressed. And there is some sense that we see those different kinds of people. Or maybe our tendency would be to say something like, oh, well, the poor is not actually just the economically poor, it's the spiritually poor. And the blind are not just the physically blind, they're the spiritually blind. And the captives are not just those who are physically captive, but they're spiritually held captive by sin. And those who are oppressed or weighed down are not just weighed down by other people, but they're weighed down by, by the enemy of our souls. And this is a really spiritual kind of thing, and there is some sense of truth to that. But I think what Jesus is trying to get at is, is something a little bit different, but it's something kind of both and. I think what Jesus is talking about is people that are holistically poor and blind and captive and weighed down and needy. It is economics and it is education and it is vocation and it's likely family background in that culture. And in that culture, it's likely gender as well. I think he's talking about the holistically poor and disenfranchised, those that are on the outside, those that are disadvantaged, those that are excluded. And yes, they may be economically poor and spiritually poor. They may be economically rich and yet spiritually poor. They may be weighed down by things and systems. They may be weighed down by their sin. They're people that are in many ways, in any number of social or even economic reasons, they're outside the typically accepted profile of God's professing people. They're on the outside in some way. They're the least likely people that God's people would expect. They're the people that would be least like them. And there do seem to be typically accepted profiles of people among certain churches and church cultures in certain areas. I think what Jesus is doing is breaking through all that. And he said, no, no, it's not about you. It's about me, and it's not about you. It's about those who still need me. And those who still need me are the ones that are excluded, the ones on the outside, the ones that are disadvantaged, the ones you're, in many ways, the ones you're least likely to think about, the ones that are probably least like you. And I think part of what Jesus is getting across is that he's not going to be bound by these socially created boundaries that church subcultures create. He's not going to do that. It's not what he's about. 
He wants to reach people that still need him, that need his forgiveness, that need release. Two times in this passage, that word liberty is used. The word can be translated, it is translated more, more, uh, more straightforwardly, release. And in Luke's gospel, it talks often about release from sin. And part of this is that Jesus wants to go to other people that are outside of the people of God that need to be released, forgiven for their sin, and they need to be released. They need to be freed into a life that's, that they could never have otherwise, following God, a life of forgiveness of sin and freedom in the follow of the God of the Bible, and also freedom to be involved in the life of God's people, released from being on the outside and released to be on the inside, released from being disadvantaged and released to be a life that that lives under the advantages of God and his people, released from a life that's excluded into a life that's actually included and welcomed in. I think this is what Jesus is talking about. And again, we've been talking about this idea that God is with us, but here we're reminded that, yes, God is with us, but it's not about us. It's about him, and it's about others that don't yet know him. So how did the gathering of God's professing people in the synagogue in Nazareth respond to this idea? To these ideas. How did they respond to these ideas that it wasn't about them, it was about him? That it wasn't about them, collectively even. It was about those that were on the outside that don't yet know him. How did they respond to this idea or these ideas? I think that's the answer to that is actually in in Jesus' third novel concept in this message that it's not about you, so many of you will reject me. It's not about you. And so in the end, because we're so bent on ourselves, many of you will reject me when you hear these things. Look, this is where it's going in the end, but it doesn't actually start here. It starts somewhere a bit differently. Look at verse 22. And all spoke what? Well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? It often begins with us receiving these ideas. Listen, as I'm talking about these ideas, that it's not about you, it's about him, and it's not about you, it's about those who don't yet know him and still need him, there's something intuitive about what's going on inside of you right now that goes, yes, that is true. There's something innately attractive about this idea that that we would do things that are selfless, that we would get outside of ourselves, that we'd want to give ourselves to things that are beyond us and bigger than us. And I think this is where it begins when, when the professing people of God hear this message. It's not about you. It's about him. It's not about you. It's about those who are outside of the people of God. We just go, yes, that's what it's about. It sounds good. But this reaction can quickly and unexpectedly take a turn from receiving this to something else. And we see this in verse 23 where it says, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. This idea of receiving these ideas that it's not about us, it's about him and those that don't yet know him, we receive that idea very quickly. But unexpectedly, and even in a way we, we may not see coming, it can, it, can re- it can reverse, it can turn, it can change itself. They begin to reverse this idea, and it becomes not, not outward-oriented, but inward-focused now. This proverb, physician, heal yourself, was a commonly known proverb in Jesus' day. 
And the idea was if a physician can help someone else, he should be able to help himself. What you do for other people, you should do for yourself. What you do for people on the outside, you should do for people on your inside, on the inside. And what he's saying is, we have heard what you did at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. What they're saying is, great, you want to do all these things for people that are outside, that's great. But what about us? Jesus, this is your hometown. You're our hometown hero. You must have something for us, right? Because we're, we're from Nazareth, and so are you. And now you're famous, and, and something about your fame has got to be directed toward us, right? I mean, you're doing all these great miracles. You have some of those for us, right? You're doing all these great sermons. you got a great word and sermon for us, right? Like all the things that you want to do from the people that are excluded on the outside, great, but what about us? Wanting God's goodness to turn toward them instead of toward the people that are outside of God's people. And this is always the way that it goes. You know, we're part of a church planting network, and among our network of churches, we talk about church planting and the way that it goes, and this is the way that it goes. See, churches get planted because someone moves to a city or has a burden for a particular place, and they go to that place, and and they're seeking out people that don't yet know Jesus because they realize as church planters it's all about Jesus, and it's all about people that don't yet know him. And so churches get planted, and they get started. And the reason they get planted often is that statistically, more people come to know Jesus for the first time in church plants than in existing churches. And so we start churches, and we're looking for not always other Christians. We're mostly looking for other not-yet-Christians. And so we're preaching the gospel, and people are coming to know Christ, and we're seeing churches grow like this. Typically, it's kind of a a low growth. Sometimes it kind of explodes. But the life cycle kind of goes like this and begins to plateau, and sometimes for decades. Because although we began in this place where we said it's all about him and all about people that don't yet know him, we get to this place where we're like, well, it's kind of about us, actually. And it's about what we need, and it's about what we need to grow, and it's about our comfort, and it's about our programs, and it's about, and it's, so it's all about us now. And, and we've reversed that, that place that we were in the beginning, just like they did. They received these things. Yes, it's all about these other people. We need to go share Christ with them. And then we get into these holding patterns where we've now reversed it. What do you have for me? Physician, heal yourself. And that bell curve at the end drops off really quick. When a church grows and it begins to plateau and then it just falls off the edge, it dies. It's a typical life cycle of a church. But, you know, you think about it, it's actually the typical life cycle of a lot of professing Christians, just individuals. Where we come to know Christ and and, and we see the grace he's offered to us and And we're excited about that. We're sharing it with other people. And then we just sort of become about our own growth and our own sustenance and our own progress and our own comfort and our own needs. And eventually our spiritual life just sort of drops off. A lot of Christians unaffected by the things of God. It's a typical life cycle of a professing Christian, unfortunately, as well, which is probably the reason why it's a typical life cycle of churches. It's really hard to imagine, but it actually gets one step worse. Look at verse 24, where it says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. 
See, ultimately, God's people would remove would move from receiving this idea that it's not about not about me, not about us, and, and it's, it's about Him and other people that don't yet know Him. And 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 eventually, they'd reverse this idea, wanting things to be more about them. Eventually, they end up rejecting this idea. It's not about them. It's not about us. It's not about me. Jesus is so gracious to help them avoid this. He wants them to avoid this. Jesus doesn't want his people to go down this road. So he gives them two great examples of God's people, God's prophets, who actually lived out this reality that it's not about them. It's about him, and it's not about them. It's about people that don't yet know him. It's about people that are on the outside. It's about people that are excluded and disadvantaged in some way, economically, spiritually, or both. The first example is in verses 24 and 20, or 25 and 26, where he says, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Jesus gives them an example of, of someone who is on the outside. First, in that culture, she's a woman, so she was on the outside. She was disadvantaged in some way. Secondly, she was a widow. She was on the outside. She was alone, lived much of her life by herself. And she was a pagan. She was from Sidon. She was not one of the widows that were in Israel. Now, what Jesus is saying is, listen to me, there were a lot of widows in, in Israel. There were lots of widows in Israel. But Elijah went to what? To none of them. He went to the widow that was out in Sidon, the one that was on the outside. Unless they don't get the example of Elijah, Jesus gives them yet another example as he finishes his sermon. And there were many lepers, verse 27, in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. That during these days, again, don't miss it. He said, there were a lot of lepers among God's people. But Elisha went to none of those. He went out to this guy named Naaman. Who was Naaman? He was a leper, so he was on the outside. He was a pagan, so he was on the outside. He was a murderer, so he was excluded. He was a human trafficker, and so he was excluded. And he was very rich and powerful, and used his wealth and power to leverage it against other people. The most despised, rejected, outside of the people of God you could possibly be. Jesus is saying there were a lot of these kinds of lepers, a lot of lepers in Israel in these days, but Elijah went to this one, to Naaman. Jesus is doing his best to point them to two examples to say, don't go down this road of receiving this and then reversing it on yourself and ultimately rejecting it. No, no, no. Learn from Elijah and Elisha. It's hard to imagine it could go down this road, but what comes next proves just how strong this pull inward really is. When they had heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their own town was built and so that they could throw him down the cliff. <laughs> they wanted to toss him off the edge of Big Chrono and splatter him on the rocks at the bottom. And this is the picture, right? 
And it's hard to imagine the, the extremity, the violence that, that the people of the professing people of God could have toward the heart of God in these things. But we see it in churches. Recently I was on a on a cohort call. I signed up for a re, church revitalization cohort this past year. And my friend who's leading it, you know, called me and said, Hey, why'd you sign up for this thing? And I said, I want to continue to learn and grow. And I think I think I need some revitalization. I think my church is going to need some revitalization. I think every church is going to need, and, and I want to learn, and I want to be ready. And so we've been doing it for the last four months or so, and, you know, he was telling the story in one of our sessions about a church that they're revitalizing in Colorado where they do most of their work. And it was a church of about 30 people that had been a church of 30 people for a decade or so because they had just, they had received these things initially and the church had grown, but then they ended up reversing these things and everything had become about them. And now the church is filled with 30 people and it's just dead. There's no life in it at all. And when they approached the church to see if they could help, the venomous things that that church said, that the people in that church said to them, the violence with their words, it blew me away. But then I thought, no, I, I guess I could believe it. When we get that inwardly turned, the people of God rejecting the heart of God in these things. This kind of reaction will not stop Jesus. Jesus has a message he wants to proclaim, and he has a mission that he's going to carry out. And so this passage ends by, by showing us that Jesus just, just moves away from Nazareth. He moves away from these people, and he moves on. It says, but passing through their midst, he went away. He left. Nazareth. You see, when this message that Jesus is preaching, that it's not about you, it's about me, it's not about you, it's about those who don't yet know me, when that message is rejected, if not reversed, Jesus will just make his way to other places that will receive that message more heartily. And that's what happened. Not everyone received this message but other towns in Galilee received it better than Nazareth, that's for sure. And we see this in Luke 4, 42 to 44 at the end of the section where it says, And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news to the kingdom of God to these other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea, likely the same or similar sermon that he preached in Nazareth. You know, while it went better for Jesus in other towns in Nazareth, at the end, it kind of didn't go well for him. Right? Like there's this other sense to where this story is actually just sort of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Jesus. The people of God will receive many of the things that he's saying. But eventually they'll, they'll, they'll reverse it, they'll turn it, they'll say, wait, 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 it can't be about all these other people, it's got to be about us. And in the end they'll say, Hosanna, you know, and they'll, they'll usher him into Jerusalem, but, but following that they'll yell, crucify him, crucify him. I mean, ultimately at the end they'll all reject him, all of his disciples will leave him, and the people of God will reject him and they'll nail him to a cross. And I think believing that, no, 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 we're the good people. We're the insiders. See, like, look at us. Look at how good we are. Look at how different we are from all the people on the outside. Look at how much better we are. Like, that's what the Jewish people were thinking about the Gentiles. We're so much better than the people in Sidon. We're so much better than Naaman. 
We're the moral ones. We're the good ones. We're the ones that are close to God. We're so different for them. We can't let them pollute our gathering. And all along, they were as in much of need of God's grace as anyone. And so Jesus, in his grace, would live a sinless life on our behalf that we could never live. He would die a sinner's death on the cross and in our place and for our sins. And as they rejected him in the end, he would say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus would rise from death three days later. And if we would place our faith and our hope and our trust in him, as the Savior, come to save us from our sins, to release us from our sins and to free us into a life that's free from sin and free to follow him and love him and obey him and be involved in something that's much greater than ourselves, giving us a life we could never have otherwise. And this is his invitation to us. And I think this is part of our good news this morning, which I think is this, that Jesus has come to save us from our sin and from ourselves and to include us in a life and a mission that is much bigger than us. Village Church, as we talk about these things, and I've talked about them a number of times, that that acronym JOY, Jesus, others, and yourself, I think we all intuitively know that this is where it's at. That this is where it's at. The people that you know that live their lives for Jesus first, for others second, and for themselves, in some way, shape, or form, their own kind of desires or dreams, I mean, you know that those are the people that have the greatest joy in their life because they're living their lives in a God-oriented way. It's about him. It's about others that don't yet know him. And, yet, of course, it's also about what he's doing in their lives. Jesus, others, and yourself. It's the life I want this year, a life that's filled with joy. I could sure use that. I'm sure you could, too. It's a life I want for this church, and it's a life by God's grace we'll have as we receive the things that Jesus gives to us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for giving us a record of this sermon in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, thank you for showing us so much of your heart through reading and expounding upon this passage of Scripture. Holy Spirit, help us to receive these things, that our hearts would be open to you to receive this idea that it's not about us, it's about you. It's not about us, it's about people that still need, don't yet know you. Empower us to this end, to go to the people that are outside and disadvantaged and excluded in some or many ways, to invite them to you, to invite them into the fellowship of God's people, forgiveness of sin, freedom to the life that you intended, and part of something that's much bigger than themselves. We thank you for the grace and mercy that you've extended to us, that we were all once on the outside, disadvantaged, excluded, but you've invited us in. You've offered us everything that you have. You've included us in your family. We're grateful. 
We respond to you now in your name and for your sake, Jesus. Amen. Will you stand with us as we respond to that today?